Good morning. Let us pray. Gracious God, as we turn to your word for us, may the Spirit of God rest upon us. Help us to be steadfast in our hearing, in our speaking, in our believing, and in our living. Amen. The scripture lesson from this mor- for this morning comes from Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 5, which may be found on page 197 of the New Testament section of your pew Bible and also in your bulletin. Hear the word of God. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, assuming human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him even more highly and gave him the name that is above every other name, so that, all, so that at the name given to Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Last week, we began our sermon series on heresy. And I realized that maybe I should have specified that this is not because I'm actually promoting heretical thought or seeking to turn you into heretics, but because sometimes exploring what we don't believe helps us better understand what we do believe. Now, it's important we do this with a healthy degree of humility, though, because as I mentioned last week, These theologians that we're talking about throughout this series, they were devout Christians. They were folks who took their commitment to Jesus Christ and the church very seriously. They didn't set out to divide or weaken the church or grab power or status. They were deeply concerned about understanding God rightly and worshiping God properly. It's just that at some point they made a theological turn that the church throughout the ages has been unable to support. What was true last week will continue to be true. The distance between someone labeled a heretic of the faith and someone labeled a hero of the faith is sometimes astonishingly small. When it comes to the debate about the divinity of Jesus Christ, that distance is actually measurable. It's minuscule, but it's measurable. It is exactly the size of one single iota. An English dictionary will tell you that iota means infinitesimally small. 
But a Greek dictionary will tell you that iota is what we translate as the letter I. A single vowel, a single syllable, drawn with a single line. When it comes to the divinity of Jesus Christ, that distance between orthodoxy and heresy is that small. But the implications are huge. Throughout the entirety of Scripture, we have references to God the Father and Jesus the Son and the Spirit. Language about the three persons of the Trinity, but nothing about the overall concept of Trinity. The Bible never actually uses that word. Theologians developed it to give language to the truth we see reflected in Scripture. And some of the earliest debates about what would come to be called the Trinity and how the three persons of that Trinity relate to one another begin with a priest named Arius. Arius was well-educated and the head of one of the leading churches in Alexandria at the beginning of the fourth century. And Arius loved the Lord his God with all his heart and all his mind and all his soul and all his strength. He loved his God and he declared him to be unknowable, unchanging, and utterly transcendent, the creator of all that was and is and ever will be. Arius loved his God so much that he found himself denying the divinity of the Son of God. God and Jesus could not be the same, he said, because if that was the case, the limitations that Jesus took upon himself when he became human, well, if Jesus and God are the same, he thought that then out of logical necessity, those limitations would have to be placed on God too. But if we declare God to be without limit, Arius said, well, then he said, we must conclude that God and Jesus are not the same. One must be greater while the other, even if still great, is somewhat lesser than the original. So that's what brings us back to that one iota of distance. The letter I is the only thing standing between heresy and orthodoxy. It involves two concepts represented by two words, and I'm going to look right down here to make sure I get it right. Homoousios and homoiousios. H-O-M-O-O-U-I-O-S and H-O-M-O-I-O-U-I-O-S. There will be a spelling test later. <laughs> Homoousios means same substance, while homoiousios means similar substance. The Church Universal declared that God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son are of the same substance. Arius said, nope, that does not work. They are not of the same substance, just similar. Here's the way he thought about it. In the beginning was God, and in the beginning was only God. And God created everything, absolutely everything, outside of God's own self. Which would mean that God created Jesus. Which would mean that Jesus is a creation, not a creator. 
And as a creation, not the creator, the son is not to be elevated to the same level as God. That would be demeaning and belittling of the God we worship and serve. Now, Arius read his Bible. He knew of John 1, which declares that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He understood that to mean that Jesus preexisted before the rest of creation, that Jesus was already around before God created anything else, but that Jesus was still secondary to God, created by God. And for this reason, Arius still loved Jesus and worshipped Jesus. To be clear, he was never anti-Jesus. He just understood Jesus in a very particular way. He believed Jesus was the first and foremost of all created beings, the perfect example of God in human form, yet still not actually God. Similar substance. Not the same. Jesus is still more similar to God than anyone else ever was or ever will be, he said. So Jesus is still the way in which we find salvation because Jesus shows us the way to God in a way that no one else or no other thing ever could do. But even still, Jesus is not God. After all, he said, when Jesus cries out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, surely he wasn't crying out to himself. And when he begged in the garden, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but thy will. Well, surely, Arius says, he wasn't begging himself. But what the church said in response was that while those passages pointed clearly to Jesus' humanity, they did so in a way that didn't deny the divinity at all. The church said we hold these two things to be true at the very same time, that Jesus was fully divine and fully human, and that for Jesus to be fully divine, he must be of the very same substance as God. The church never denied the passages to which Arius clung. They accepted them readily. They just put them in relationship with others, including most especially a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi, an excerpt from which Lucy just read. There we read from Paul himself speaking of Jesus, though he was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And then God gave him the name that is above every other name so that at the name given to Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That name above every other name We often assume that name is Jesus, but it's not. The name of which Paul speaks is the sacred name of God, represented in the Old Testament by four letters, understood to be so holy it should never be spoken aloud. God gave Jesus that name, 
God's own name, a God-only name. Because God and Jesus are one and the same, revealed differently, but of the same substance. This passage from Paul has long been called the Christ hymn. It's almost universally understood to have been a piece of liturgy, words that a gathered community just like ours would have said or sung together during worship. And the Christ hymn does what all of our best hymns have always done. Borrow words from the sacred texts upon which our faith is built. The Christ hymn borrows from the prophet Isaiah in two distinct places. Isaiah 45 reads, Turn to me and be saved, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone forth in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear. And Isaiah 42 reads, I am the Lord, that is my name. In my glory I will give to no other. So in that Christ hymn, we find some of the strongest affirmation about who God is, about who God understands God's self to be. It's some of the strongest and clearest language we find anywhere in the Old Testament. And that language is applied to the person of Jesus Christ, before whom every knee will bow. In the end, it was worship actually, that was a large part of why Arius and his way of thinking was eventually denied by the church. His opponents pointed out that he himself was deeply dedicated to the act of worship, and that as a Christian priest, he himself routinely led the people of God in worship of Jesus Christ. But to be Christian is to worship only one God, That is repeated throughout Scripture. And if God and Jesus are not of the same substance, if God and Jesus are not both divine, then our worship of Jesus Christ as the Son of God becomes idol worship. And with that, we saw that sometimes our theology will direct our worship. But sometimes... Our worship will direct our theology. It was in the case of Arianism that our worship of the one true God carried the day. At the Council of Nicaea, Arius was declared a heretic and the Nicene Creed was adopted, a creed that went to great length to specify the relationship between God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son. A creed was adopted, language that clarified theology in language that was developed once again for the purpose and practice of worship. It was a creed that did not seek to resolve the tension inherent in saying Jesus Christ is fully divine and also fully human. In fact, that is the mystery of our faith. I mentioned last week 
that a tremendous amount of what we understand to be heresy emerged when faithful people were trying so hard to alleviate tension that comes with being a person of faith. Arius is a great example of that. Now next week we'll talk about folks who swung too hard in the other direction clinging so tightly to Jesus's divinity that they ultimately denied his humanity. So in some ways, next week will be a continuation of this week. Because the mystery of our faith says that Jesus is both. At the same time, it is the fundamental underpinning of our faith. And it does not make sense. You cannot rationalize your way into understanding it. At some point, you just have to make a choice to believe it or not. What I know about that is this. It is always easier for me to believe the biggest things in community with others around me, because left in my own devices, it's too easy for me to get stuck in my own head or consumed by my own abilities or convinced that, well, yes, I should be able to understand what no one else in human history ever has. But when we gather together every week, In this place, when I am with all of you, and we are saying words that have been spoken for ages, and we are reading texts together that whisper sacred truth, and we are singing words that are etched on our hearts, and we are trusting one another to hold the reality of our lives, when that happens, I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is in the room. And I think Paul knew that would happen. I think that's why when it came to the hardest things, to the generally, to the genuinely incomprehensible things, Paul said, here's a hymn, let's sing. And I think that's why the Council of Nicaea, when the divinity of Jesus Christ was under fire, they didn't write a letter or a treatise or a resolution. They didn't even write a sermon. They wrote liturgy, words designed to be spoken together, words that they hoped and prayed and trusted would knit us together. They are old words. They speak of ancient and enduring truth. So let us use their words now. I invite you to rise in body or in spirit and together affirm our faith using a portion of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death 
and he suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We have said what we believe. It is a mystery, a holy mystery that we claim with joy and thanksgiving. So let us be like Paul, who wasn't perfect, not by a long shot, but let us be like Paul who said when things were all but impossible to understand, here's a hymn, let's sing it together. Friends, here's a hymn, it's 366. Let's sing it together and in singing, let us find even more of the faith we claim.